almost everyone has been in a stressful meeting about a project that's running behind. You know the feeling, the anxiety churning our guts like a rickety washing machine, the dread of being singled out, the fidgeting as each second ticks off. For Marina Nitsa, her meeting had an added wrinkle. It just happened to involve the former president of the United States, Barack Obama. As the chief tactical officer of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs at the time, Marina had to inform President Obama about a software update that was critical for the agency's digital transformation. But the government's sluggish bureaucracy was delaying the project. President Obama was frustrated, but listened to Marina's explanation about risk-averse stakeholders, slow approval processes, and other institutional roadblocks. He genuinely wanted to help and offer solutions, but even the president couldn't make the entrenched bureaucracy of the agency move any faster. For Marina Nitsa, that meeting confirmed her belief that there had to be a better way to get things done, even in a complex organization like government. This is Rich McKay of Workday. Today on the Workday podcast, we're talking with Marina Nitsa, former CTO of the VA, author of the new book, Hack Your Bureaucracy, an advocate for foster care reform. Marina talks of her experiences solving seemingly impossible problems and how you can help drive long-term change in your organization. We're very excited for you to join and we're going to talk all about uh, your role in government and any advice you have about hacking your bureaucracy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's get started. In your new book coming out soon, Hack Your Bureaucracy, you shared a funny anecdote uh, about a painful meeting uh, where you were supposed to provide an update about a, your project, which was falling behind due to sluggish bureaucracy, which anyone can relate to. But in this case, you were reporting that to President Obama, and it was about updating the software of the Veterans Administration. Sounds very stressful. <laughs> and can you share more about that meeting and you know what you learned from that? Yeah, it's funny now. Uh, at the time, I would say it was less funny. Uh, and really what it showed me is that when you have myself, my team, my bosses, the president of the United States, everybody wants something to happen in a bureaucracy, that's not enough to make it happen. There are still steps to follow, policies to follow, procedures to follow, and it's following those and actually using them against themselves that's what really creates change. Anyone could relate to that situation, no matter where you're at. In that case, what makes someone effective in a bureaucracy, Uh, whether that's government companies or even universities? And why are some people more effective than others when it comes to that situation? I think what makes you effective in a bureaucracy, and I learned this in many ways the hard way, is you have to understand how it works. You have to understand its incentive and risk frameworks, and you have to really avoid the temptation, which is where I see people fail a lot, in thinking that the answer is to just blow up the whole thing or to sidestep the rules. You know, can I just get a waiver or an exception to this? And sometimes, yes, the answer is yes. Um, But that's not going to be a repeatable process. Other people aren't going to be able to follow that after you. And if you take an exception without asking for it, uh, you will discover that uh, 40 new rules appear in place of the previous rule to make sure that nobody else ever gets to go down that loophole again. Yeah, that's so funny. It's, uh, what is that, that tag on pillows where so don't tear off this tag or there's like other all these little rules you don't never know how where they generated from you never want to be that person's the reason for the rule but then 
you need to get stuff done, right? You need to break a few rules in that case. I think instead of telling you to break a rule, although I will probably admit to cutting the tags off my pillow, um, <laughs> I would look at how can you rewrite the rule? How can you change the form? How can you go to the source of the rule and figure out if it's a rule at all? If you know the five whys technique from uh, the Toyota production management, which is you ask why five times until you get the root cause or something, more often than not in a bureaucracy, I found that when you finally get to the language in the policy, sometimes it doesn't exist, which is pretty nice, uh, or you find it and it actually gives you a lot more flexibility than like the 20 years of strata that have developed on top of it made you believe. You have an interesting path. So you started a business at three, and then you built websites, websites when you were 12. And could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was not very good at being a kid. I always loved to work and I loved to solve problems. Um, my first business when I was three, which was selling uh, packs of magazine subscription cards, you know, the little free ones that come in the middle of magazine it was not particularly profitable, but I believed I was solving a problem at the time. But when I started getting into websites, I was honestly building sites for my favorite soap opera characters because I enjoyed coding and I saw this sort of like gap. This was just when like the concept of a website was becoming real. And then from there, I started building more sites for actors themselves on the soap operas, uh, and then a number of businesses. And really, for me, the coding was about solving problems uh, with technology and with business process redesign. And that has basically been my whole life since. Yeah, that's so interesting. And what a it sure beats you know what I was doing at twelve, or my first job I think was at McDonald's, and so uh, that would have been a huge step up from. There's from that. no shame. There is no <laughs> shame in working at McDonald's. That is good. On <laughs> that's true for sixteen year old free food and all that was yeah it was pretty good. And so when and why did you get into government and what were your motivations? So I'm a lifelong libertarian who always saw government from the outside and said, like, you know, why is this so messed up? And I admit to having that same feeling I mentioned a few minutes ago that you shouldn't have, which is, you know, just get rid of the thing. And then the White House created a program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows, which was an offshoot of the White House Fellows Program for entrepreneurs that were tech savvy and wanted to come in for 18 month tours of duty. And so I saw this and thought it was just crazy enough to like send in my resume. And then when they picked me, I was thought it was just crazy enough to leave my apartment in Seattle for just six months, just six measly months, and go to the White House and kind of see what it would really be like. And I started working for uh, Nick Sinai, who is currently my co-author of my new book, and uh, Richard Kulata at the Department of Education, who both taught me a ton about how you actually get things done in the government. And I sort of fell in love with the problem at that point, and I ended up staying through the end of the Obama administration. Eventually, you became the chief technical officer of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, and at 27, right? And it's just an amazing journey. You had no college degree. And on top of that, you had a daunting challenge that they had 500 websites. Am I saying that accurately? Like, find different websites to manage benefits and access services. So if maybe it's not 500, but it's probably a lot. So how do you manage all that? How do you transform such you know, all those disparate websites, a challenging digital experience. And um, could you tell me any stories about your time there? Sure. At the VA, I really learned what to do in the face of a seemingly impossible problem, right? Because I don't know how one fixes the VA as a whole, and I don't know that anybody ever will. And we couldn't even agree on how many websites we had. There were three different official lists of how many websites we have as one example. So <laughs> I did kind of the only thing I could think to do at the time but what is since the only thing I ever do to solve this sort of a problem, which is I started with one thing that I knew I could help fix from the perspective of an end user. And in this case, in the perspective of a veteran, and the thing that we chose to work on was enrolling in VA healthcare. Many people 
and mistakenly believe that if you're a veteran, you qualify for healthcare at the VA. And that's not true. It's actually a fairly complicated set of criteria. And then when I was CTO of the VA, we were regularly on the front page of the newspaper because, uh, well, for many things, but this particular time also because they had found a warehouse with like 800,000 pending paper applications from veterans who were trying to get healthcare. And the inspector general estimated that 100,000 of those veterans had died waiting for health wow. This was a tremendous crisis. And it was an opportunity to say, hey, how can we fix this from the perspective of the veteran? And so my team and I went out, Marianne on my team in particular, I want to credit for this, um, and sat with veterans who were trying and could not get into the VA healthcare system and just with their permission recorded their experience. Um, and I'm happy to send you a link, maybe you could share. There's some um, sad but entertaining videos that we had captured of veterans trying and trying and trying, but the website literally did not work to enroll when I say it literally would not open. And so we started with like plain language explanation of how you even are eligible because it, again, it's very, very complicated. So we tried to make that plain language. We tested it over and over with veterans to make sure they could actually understand. We tried out a new form. We tested it over and over to make sure that they could fill it out successfully. And then we slowly connected that form one by one to over 150 different VA hospitals on the technology backside. And now we went from a form that didn't work uh, and in 800,000 pending paper applications to now over 2 million veterans have instantly enrolled in VA healthcare from their mobile phone. And that process ended up busting a lot of organizational barriers, cutting through a lot of red tape, clarifying a lot of rules so that when we then did that for the next business line and the next business line and the next business line, it got incrementally easier. And today, uh, the VA wins customer service awards. The VA is actually leading the entire federal government in customer experience, led by the amazing Barbara Morton and my successor, uh, Charles Worthington. And a veteran can get almost anything they need done at va.gov right now in one place. And that's 10 years later. That's so wonderful. I remember you telling the story that where you had this kind of one-on-one experience with uh, maybe the wife of the veteran, and she was not aware of all the amazing services that were offered on behalf of her husband or for her husband. Yeah. One of my favorite tactics, which is in my new book, is called Get Out of the Office. And I was very, very new in my job at the VA and very overwhelmed by what I was supposed to be trying to solve. And so I had done a design for delight session and I was assigned to sit on a bench at the Menlo Park VA and talk to anybody that came by. Um, And I am a pretty shy person, so I was particularly not looking forward to sitting on a bench and talking to strangers, but I did it. Uh, And the first person that I sat down next to me was a, a woman who husband had been hospitalized at the VA for the last nine months. So she had effectively lived at the VA for nine months. And she's telling me how amazing the doctors were and how amazing the nurses were and what great care they had taken of her and her, her entire family. And as she's telling me her kind of family's life story, in my head, I'm thinking about all the other VA benefits they're eligible for, eligible for college benefits for their son, eligible for pension, eligible for an automotive uh, modification grant. And I asked her, you know, what other VA benefits do you take advantage of? And her answer to me stunned, which was, what other VA benefits? So here we had a woman who lived at our hospital for nine months and did not know that we had over 80 other benefit lines. And that really opened my eyes to the fact that the VA, like many bureaucracies, is organized around how it works internally and wasn't organized around the veteran. 100%. I think a lot of people experience that where you create something But it's another thing to get people to use it or want to use it or even aware that it exists, no matter what you're what you're doing. Yeah, that's that's an eye opener. 
And so moving on, so you were an advisor to the USCTO Todd Park and their first entrepreneur in residence in the U.S. Department of Education. You also have a fantastic history of doing the seemingly impossible for getting big things done. So can you share uh, any advice from your time in government to help people solve these seemingly impossible challenges like you experienced at the VA and other places? Yeah. So in addition to my work in the federal government, I now do kind of IT crisis consulting at a number of big and large firms. And I work in foster care reform now with nonprofits and more local government. And across all of these, um, there are a few tactics that seem to keep working. And one of my favorites is to look between the silos. And this is something anybody can do no matter where you are in your bureaucracy, including if you're outside it, like maybe you're feeling trapped by you know, your condo association. Um, and when you look between the silos, you wanna see the handoff points in a process because they're usually not very well defended, right? Like people have their silos and they don't want you changing anything about that silo. But when silo A hands off to silo B, often that's like completely unprotected territory. And that can be a really great place to make change. One of my favorite stories here is I was following a application process for becoming a foster parent in a particular state. And as I'm watching it gets processed, the woman is using carbon copy paper, which is that multi multiple colored paper you press really hard and it goes through the three layers to request um, the applicant's driving record. And I you know, said, well, gosh, why are you using carbon copy paper for that? And she said, oh, it's because the DMV lives in the 19th century. They only take carbon copy paper. And so I, having now learned to look between the silos, went over to the DMV and I said, hey, can you show me how you process requests for driving records? And the woman pulled up an electronic system saying like, oh, and we get the electronic requests in over here. And then I process them this way. And I said, well, I saw some carbon copy paper. Where does that play in? And she said, oh, you were at child welfare. Those people live in the 19th century. They're always sending me this carbon copy paper. Why don't they <laughs> use our electronic system? And so in about half an hour, I was able to connect those two parts, those two different silos who probably would never have met if, you, if nobody looked in between and solved this really big pain point and also shaved easily weeks off of this overall process for becoming a foster parent just by kind of connecting to two dots. So that's something really anybody anywhere, you can follow something from start to finish and see where they may be dropped off along the way. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that uh, approach, like what is operating between the silos, just to break those barriers. I mean, that's just amazing. Why should governments focus on digital innovation, you know, specifically for the people they serve, like their customers? And what impact does that have on the people they serve? I mean, governments are focused on digital innovation because that's how people want to interact with their government. You know, I'm a super type A. I love paperwork. I love process. And I do not want to interact with my government any more than I have to. I don't want to be stuck in a myriad of forms. I expect in today's world, most things to be instantaneous. I sure don't want to get on the phone and I really, really sure do not want to go in person and wait in line all day to do something. And so the more that digital innovation can meet people where they are, to provide those sort of like smooth or instantaneous interactions. Um, and another flip of that, that I think people don't see as much is that you can also get insights from your digital pieces that you would not be able to get elsewhere. For example, it's pretty trivial these days where if you have a form online, you can track exactly how long it's taking people to complete that form and exactly how far they got in the form before they abandon it. And it's pretty hard to do that in person. Like you can observe a small handful of people doing something, but when you get into millions of people, that gets pretty impossible to observe. Like one example that we found there at the VA was that the vast majority of veterans when they were applying for benefits did not know what their adjusted gross income was from last year. And I don't know about you, but I don't know what mine was either. 
So they would have been form um and which was creating a tr tremendous drop off to getting their benefits but that's information that the va can get from the irs so we were able with that insight to see that it was such a burden to so many people to remove that burden for everybody um, and we only found that because we were able to do that level of digital tracking and so i think that there's ways that uh, digital products can create insights and innovations that solve problems for everybody including those who can't use digital and i do want to emphasize like digital is great for the people that want to interact that way but to me, another benefit of it is that the people that want to use digital and want to use self-service should be able to do it. And that frees up your staff for the people that can't or don't want to use self-service. Because otherwise, if everybody's in line physically, you know, a lot of people really get lost entirely and never get that benefit in the first place. Yeah, wonderful. And you previously mentioned you were focused on improving uh, America's child welfare system. Uh, so why did you get involved with foster care? And what can governments do better really to help children be more safe and stable and in loving families? Yeah, so this could be its own podcast, but um, I first got involved <laughs> in uh, child welfare when I became a CASA, which is a court appointed special advocate, which is a volunteer role that's probably a corollary to like big brothers, big sisters. But instead of being a mentor, you're there to be the eyes and the ears for the court to make sure that kids in foster care don't fall through the cracks. And so I kept seeing my kids, you know, have to move schools two weeks before they finished elementary school or um, parents not able to understand how to get a stipend to cover their rent when they were facing eviction because it was just such a crazy, complicated process. And so I really wanted to get involved in child welfare in some way. And so when I left the VA with my newfound bureaucracy hacking skills, I wanted to bring that uh, to foster care and see what I could do. So I run a 20 state working group uh, every month we have a different topic and the 20 child welfare systems in my group get together and we surface and scale promising practices around foster parent licensing, recruitment, retention and placement with a focus on kinship caregivers. Um, and I kind of have three high level goals that I think governments can be doing a lot better in child welfare. Um, I think the vast majority of kids who enter foster care should be placed with an adult that they already know and trust is like called kin so it's in addition to relatives it might be you know your english teacher or your godparent of the kinship caregivers that have these kids we should be paying them 100 percent of the time and right now as a country we only do that about 20 percent of the time we pay strangers to take in foster children but we do not pay kin to take in those exact same children um, and then for the remaining children who truly don't have a kinship caregiver available to take them in, we should be doing a much better job of using data-driven targeted recruitment to make sure that those kids can be in homes that fully meet their needs, that are in their school district, that speak their language, ideally that share their religion, and that can keep them connected to their community and their, their parents. And so we do a lot of work around that. And a lot of it, you know, it feels same with the VA, like fixing foster care feels overwhelming at times. But when you look at, you know, there's a couple things on the topic of putting kids with adults that they already know and trust. Take a six-year-old, you know, they don't have an address book of their kin uh, in their back pocket. You have to find those kin. And most states' processes for that are really backwards. They send, you know, snail mail letters in the mail, and that's about it. But if you help with things like unblock Facebook, that's a great way to find kin. Or if you change the incentive structure slightly at your placement desk, so they have to get a signature from their boss if they're not going to place a child with an adult that they already know and trust, that can really start shifting the numbers towards um, the kind of behavior that is really much better for kids. And so that's what a lot of what I focus on. And then we publish the promising practices that we find on our website at childwelfareplaybook.com in a way that any other state can sort of copy it and adapt it for their own use and not have to start from scratch. That's really interesting because I, I didn't know that the child welfare system didn't give money to the kin, right? Because that's, 
I mean, in a way, it's similar to a lot of caregiving and that largely goes unpaid. I mean, I have a, I have a son. I, I couldn't imagine like having to take on more children and not having the additional funds or the time or the resources to help that would just put such a, a stress, even on people who are loving and want to bring in this kid to their yeah. homes. Yeah. And that's really where shining the light on the families helps because when you're sitting at that kitchen table with them, you understand that the person that added the 75 requirements that uh, you know, you have to get a tuberculosis test and you have to get your cat registered and you have to have recycling services. These all sound fine on paper, but when you actually sit with a family, you realize that they are extremely problematic burdens and we need to get them out of the way. If you are safe enough to place, you're safe enough to pay. Yeah, hundred percent. That's really amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And you also do talk a lot about uh, business process engineering. So how is that related to government? You share more about that? Yeah, I, to me, what isn't uh, a business problem <laughs> in government? Uh, it's really the bigger the process is, the fewer and fewer people you have that really understand how it works from start to finish. It's not a magic trick. Anybody listening to this should, should and can do it. You just got to follow the process from the start to finish. And especially when you're considering it from the end user's perspective. So, where are they getting confused? Where are they falling off? Where is something falling through a crack where or or where are there three possible ways to go and it's not really clear which one to go through government could do a, such a better job if it considered these flows in it from an efficiency perspective and from a customer service perspective in terms of the end user that's that needs the benefit excellent and how can technology and data help governments provide a more seamless and unified experience for their customers so I do want to know, I don't think technology is ever a goal in and of itself. Technology is a way to help you get to your other goals. So I see a lot of efforts around like, we have to get off, get rid of the mainframes or we have to get everything onto the cloud. And like those may be fine uh, parts of, of achieving your other goal, but what is your actual goal? Is your goal to process your claims in under five days? Is your goal to get people their food stamps on the same day? Technology can certainly help though, with kind of cross-benefit access, which is something that we've tried to do a lot at the VA. It's not realistic to have someone understand 80 different benefit lines and how they intersect and then apply for each one. So to the extent that we can use data and technology to provide self-service uh, or even back-end data automation for manual employees that are helping people to pre-populate forms, to pre-figure out your eligibility, to make processes easier, I think that that's all net win. We always like to advise people like, what are your goals even before you choose what day or another cloud provider? Because that's that will help guide you in the process so much more. Like get your data in order, figure out where it's coming from, get your goals in order and your processes and all that. And it, the process will be so much better. And nothing drives that sort of change better than an actual real business problem with an actual real goal. I've seen so many governments and large companies and even smaller nonprofits spend 10 years, you know, we're going to look at every data element in a spreadsheet and we're going to think about it in the abstract. Well, the thing that helped us get, you know, veterans healthcare applications to 150 hospitals, each had different data dictionaries, was doing it. If we had just kind of thought about it in a room, um, I think the paper applications would still be in the warehouse 10 years later. Exactly. Exactly. So about the people working in government, so how can governments kind of attract and empower those people and help them better serve the constituents and the communities? People want to achieve a mission. They want to be part of a mission. And so the more that you can expose your employees, wherever they are, to the end people that they're helping, even if it's a little, you know, every once in a while, and also expose them upstream and downstream of their own process so that they see kind of how it all fits together. I think that's really really the key. Okay. Awesome. 
a question I like to ask is a little bit about predictions. But so are there any technology trends, demographic trends in government that you think will impact government or, or the people over the years? And what will that future of government look like? There's a real trend in considering and making an excellent customer experience. And I think there's no reason why government can't provide an excellent customer experience. Um, And I also see trends more towards direct benefits. And by that, I mean, give people cash. Stop putting in 15 layers in the middle to determine exactly what car seat they can spend the cash on. Give them a voucher so they can purchase the car seat that meets their own needs. And I think that there's an increasing move toward that that I am really heartened by. Hey, great. Excellent. And a final question is, do you have uh, like a motto for your life or a credo? I definitely do. It's a Lily Tomlin quote. It's, I always wondered why somebody didn't do something about that. And then I realized I'm somebody. I love that. You know, it's been an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to our conversation about the federal government with Marina Nitsa. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, you can find our entire catalog at workday.com slash podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you have a great work day.